Heavenly Father, we got to give you thanks. We give you thanks again for the cross. We thank you that Jesus achieved what we cannot. How he died to redeem God's people from our hopelessness and our hopeless estate. Curing the incurable. Granting believers forgiveness of sin. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would indeed work uh, your gospel into us today. Do a deep work in us, a profound work, we pray. Draw us away from self-reliance as we gather this day to worship you and to grow in the knowledge of your grace, to rely solely on you and not ourselves, knowing that salvation comes from you. Father, I pray that you would grant us a fresh experience of your grace this day. Give us spiritual eyes to see and hearts that perceive truths from your scripture. And may we experience deep communion with you, restoration of relationship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand and sing How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Please stand and let's sing. and I have all probably heard, or I wonder if you could think of a memorable or impactful speech that you might have heard throughout your life. Maybe it was a speech at a wedding or a milestone birthday. Maybe it's a sermon you've heard or a famous speech from history. Maybe you think of an American president giving a big booming speech or Martin Luther King Jr. and his I Have a Dream speech. Well, today as a church, we get to begin our exploration of a speech, a sermon that is one of, if not the most important and impactful speeches or sermons ever. Pretty big call, isn't it? But it's true concerning Jesus Christ and his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One commentator remarked that throughout the past 2,000 years, There have been thousands of books and articles written on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 as a whole. Even just this week, in my inbox, another article popped up uh, that Crossway wrote about the Beatitudes. The name Beatitudes is a name that the church has often used to describe uh, the statements that Jesus has in the opening chapter of Uh, in chapter 5 of Matthew, when he says, Blessed are such and such. 
people, describing those who are blessed. Chapter 5 opens with these words where Matthew sets the scene for this great momentous occasion. He says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and he sat down. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what's he going to say? Clearly, Jesus is about to say something important. His disciples eagerly come, ready to hear the words that drip like honey from their master's mouth. Like one holds their breath, waiting for an important speech to start. As 21st century disciples of Jesus, we too can come and hold our breath today, coming to our master as his disciples, eager and ready to hear his words. Thinking to ourselves, I wonder what our master is going to say. Is that your attitude today? Uh, be- be- uh, before we begin our study on the Sermon on the Mount uh, shortly, a little later in our service, uh, I think it might be helpful for us to consider what our hopes and gains might be uh, as we open up the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the well-known Welsh preacher in the 20th century, uh, in his day put some of the following benefits of studying the Sermon on the Mount to his church. And so I note just four of them. Uh, Number one, the Sermon on the Mount shows our absolute need of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, Jesus is going to show how this is describing the character of the Christian and our need for God to work in us. Uh, Number two, it guides what sanctification looks like. Having received the gospel and seeking to live out the Christian faith and uh, be God's people in this world, uh, it's helpful to ask, what does that look like? What kind of character? What characterizes the Christian? How might we live in this world? Number three, it will help us experience God's blessing in the Christian life. Uh, obedience matters. And as we live out our faith and seek to grow in our uh, obedience to God, we shouldn't be surprised if that does uh, bring greater blessing to our life as we respond to the gospel and live that out and experience deeper communion with God. And number four, it is the best form of evangelism. Now, I don't know about you, but this one struck me. When was the last time we had a new convert in our church? Is God working amongst us? Are we living out our faith in this world? Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Only God can change hearts. I can't change anyone's heart. But I know also that God says he uses his people. And so I think we, throughout this Sermon on the Mount, as we open up the scriptures, I think it's a call for us to examine our own hearts. And how is the Lord working through us as a church community? And so I look forward to just beginning that with you today as I open up the first two Beatitudes a little later on. But for now, let's move on to our offering this morning. Uh, As usual, we have uh, two things to give towards on a Sunday. The first offering, uh, which is the red bag that's going around. Uh, that is for the ministry of the gospel here at a local church uh, here at Paco. And the second offering today, uh, the second bag that is going around, that's uh, for the work of the RTC. Uh, so many of you will know uh, the work of the RTC is the Reformed Theological College. Uh, that's where I studied. That's uh, where our ministers study and many people study in other denominations as well as they seek to uh, grow as uh, gospel workers. And so I'd like to really encourage you to give towards those things today. Uh, And you can also give online, and uh, the bank details are on the screen. So let's take up our offering.
shortly we'll come to our Lord in a time of congregational prayer, but before we do, uh, the little followers can go out to Sunday school now and their helpers, thank you. Um, and today the little followers are, are looking at um, or looking at the work of Matt Warren in Niger, uh, and Niger has been in the news this past week, uh, for those who might not know, uh, the military coup uh, is either underway, not quite sure how it's falling out yet, um, whether it's got its uh, got enough momentum or not, or what's going to happen. So it's all a little bit uh, up in the air at the moment. Um, we've heard from Matthew and uh, and also from Sim Niger staff. Their staff are all well and safe at the moment. Um, and uh, the borders have been closed in and out of the country, though, um, which has been the main change. So a little bit of... Uh, Organisation has to happen for those because uh, the Sim Niger regime um, does a lot of uh, training in France as well as uh, for people who are finishing their mission terms, etc. So Matthew is safe and sound. They're just asking us to hold us in, their, in our prayers to God. Uh, also, um, this past week, uh, we've received some uh, correspondence about uh, for, from uh, Diane Beek with regards to Imam Elsrendon. Um, Elsa's been a bit unwell of, of late with increased pain, so she's had some blood tests and some um, bit of a GP a survey, uh, and there's some potential indicators um, that she may or may not have cancer. She's got some specialist appointments in mid-August um, to further uh, investigate that. So, uh, again, we'll keep her in prayer this morning. Finally, because we are celebrating the Lord's Supper lesson next week, um, it's our duty to prepare ourselves. For the Apostle Paul says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And during that self-examination, we should ask ourselves, do I believe that my sins are forgiven only because my Lord sacrificed himself for me on the cross? Is it my sincere desire to love God and to love my neighbour and to serve them according to God's will. As you consider these questions and if you seek your refuge in Jesus Christ alone, you're invited next week to come to the Lord with joyful praise to his table. Those who live in unbelief and sin are encouraged to repent and seek forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they have no right to come to the table of the Lord, nor do they have part in the kingdom of God. Let us come before our Lord in prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray for your grace that in this coming week we may rightly examine ourselves. We all, like sheep, have been led astray. Comfort us as repentant sinners and give us the assurance that we may look forward to a blessed celebration. And if any of us are not right with you, give grace and mercy, Lord, we pray that in repentance they may change their way of life. You may quicken their hearts to life and they may join us coming Sunday in the celebration of this most glorious feast. Father, we bring the, uh, our offerings, our gifts before you, uh, Lord, today for the work of the local church and the Reformed Theological College. Thank you, Lord, that out of the abundance that we have uh, that we can give to you, uh, we love because you first loved us, we have because you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you will use these monies to further your kingdom work in our local church by uh, through the ministry of Tim and the church leadership uh, and the outreach of our members to, the to their community and also to the college in the training of uh, new ministers for our, our congregation, for our denomination as well as um, the Reformed Presbyterians and the Reformed Church in New Zealand uh, and like-minded Presbyterian and Reformed denominations uh, and also for ongoing training for ministry workers and uh, kingdom workers in your church and those who wish to further their studies. 
Lord, we thank you for uh, George, who is currently attending there, and we pray that you'll strengthen him and be with him as he learns more about your kingdom and your word. Lord, we bring before you the needs of our congregation. Lord, we pray for Else and, the, and her family. Uh, Elsa's the increased pain that she has been suffering, and we pray that you will guide the doctors as they uh, investigate um, whether there's any causes there. Lord, comfort her, we pray, and uh, ease her burden of this pain. Lord, we pray too for the Canole family, and we continue to pray for your healing hand of mercy upon Trudy, um, and uh, give her strength as she deals with her tiredness and her family as they continue to support her. Lord, we pray for expectant mothers in our congregation as well, and we pray for Yana as uh, she as her pregnancy proceeds. Lord, uh, thank you that you are keeping her well. We pray that you keep her hydrated and, uh, and that she can uh, carry this baby to term. Lord, we pray uh, that we may meet this new child of, God, of yours. Lord, we pray too for our elderly and we pray for Eddie and Alison as she looks after him. Uh, for Liz and Everett as he, and Mark as they spent the time with her. And for Anne, Eckel and others in our congregation too. Lord, we thank you for their service and their wisdom and their knowledge and their witness of your faithfulness. Lord, we pray for the work of our church. As Pastor Tim reminded us, that you use um, your people to reach out to those around in the, in the world. Lord, we pray, please use us to reach out to our families and our neighbours and our friends with the good news that we are not lost. There is hope. We are not, it is not pointless. There is a purpose. We don't have to do it ourselves, but Christ has done it all for us. Lord, we pray that those around us may hear this message, help us to come over the barriers of our own fear and our own um, concerns and worry, but tell others the good news of you. Lord, we live in a country where we can do that freely and we give thanks for that. Uh, Lord, we pray for our country and our government, uh, for our state and federal leaders. Lord, we pray that you will give them wisdom as they fulfil the task that you have assigned to govern the people. And Lord, they serve at your pleasure. Lord, we think this past week of the military accident in Queensland in a training operation uh, for the families of those uh, for the helicopter crash up there. And Lord, we pray that you will be with those families. Uh, may you comfort them at this time. Lord, we also pray for our world. Lord, the... Uh, there is ongoing unrest in Africa and the Ukraine and just, just this past week with the um, coup in Niger. Lord, we pray that you'll use the unrest in these situations to lead people to you. Lord, we pray for, the, for Matt um, in particular as he's just arrived there, but also for the other SIM staff there uh, in the hospitals in Niger and, and elsewhere in the Niger serving mission there. Uh, we pray for them as they deal with the closed borders and they coordinate the coming, or that the people can't come and go as people have to extend their stay or they can't come as they are expected. Lord, grant them uh, safety, Lord, we pray. But also, and also, uh, may they seek opportunities to reach out in your name to those around them. Finally, Father, we come before you as we open your word lord lead us to you help us to recognize your values and your culture instead of the corrupt values and culture of our world lord may we seek to serve you in your kingdom open our hearts we pray as we open the word together in jesus name amen Uh, let's stand and sing, Speak, O Lord.
John will now lead us in our Bible reading. Reading is from uh, Matthew 5, the first four verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So far God's word. Well, this morning, my aim is not to be fancy at all. I simply want to work through these two first Beatitudes this morning, phrase by phrase, uh, and simply open it up for us. Uh, If I am to say anything by way of introduction, it's this. Here we have before us a grand test. Quite simply, are you a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? And if you're not, what does it mean to become a Christian and why do so? That's the test that's before us. That's the question that's before us. But more than that, what are you striving for as a Christian? What characteristics does God call you to display in your heart and your life? Indeed, what characteristics is He working into your soul into the soul of the Christian. That's also our test and our aim. But even more, how does this text point us to Christ and his gospel? All these questions are addressed here. Jesus' words are incredibly deep, uh, like stumbling across a bottomless mine of diamonds. This is a mine in Serbia. The diamond mine, it's over a kilometre across and over half a kilometre deep. And it's just absolutely swamps the town that's near it. Well, God's word, Jesus' words here are like that. A deep mine that we can just keep mining and mining and opening up more for us as Christians. As we'll see throughout the study on the Beatitudes today and the weeks to come, the descriptions Jesus uses here is describing, uh, he's describing things that are not natural character traits. They are not character traits that you find in the non-Christian, no matter how sincere they might be. Now, that is not at all to attack or denigrate the positives in God's common grace that do exist in all image bearers, however faulty we are, whether we are Christian or not. I've met and I know many non-Christians who I, over the years, have deeply appreciated, I respect, even admire for who they are and what they achieve. But it is to say that what Jesus is saying here uh, about the Christian is that the Christian is unique. They stand apart. There is something that is unique about the true Christian. And so the question that is going to be for you and I is, What is it that is meant to be unique about the Christian? And is that true of us? Is that true of me? Is that true of you? So Jesus opens up his mouth to his disciples and he begins. The moment has come. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus mean when he said blessed? In our Western culture, the word blessed, from my observation at least, has for the most part flown out the door of our day-to-day vocabulary. But I think think enough of it still exists for all of us to at least have heard of it being spoken of somewhere. Hashtag blessed might appear on your Twitter feed, or I mean X feed change name what does the word blessed conjure up in your own mind what do you think it means perhaps many think of someone who is happy because they possess something that makes them feel happy or blessed 
I got the job that I always wanted. I'm so blessed. I was so blessed to be able to experience that holiday. That's not the idea being conveyed here by Jesus. Rather, it relates to that of approval. And specifically, having God's approval. It's knowing the smile of God towards you. Isn't that great? What a great phrase, the smile of God. Or you could say is to receive the applause from heaven. Maybe kids can remember that today, those kids that are here. To be blessed means God is smiling at you. It means the heaven, heaven is applauding at you. Or as one commentator says it, it can be likened to the Australian idiom, good on you. Good on you, those who are poor in spirit. Good on you, those who mourn. Good on you, the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I approve of you, says God. Blessed, then, does not mean the approval of people. Whether it's seeking the approval of others around you, or even approval of yourself. I don't know about you, but my observation is that we live in a society that yearns for approval. It's human nature to seek approval, to gain the applause of others, to be approved by friends that we have, the people that we go to church with, who we work with, our family. And it offends the Western person so deeply if they feel rejected and not accepted. But Jesus is saying, for the Christian, our central concern is meant to be gaining and knowing the approval of God. That is what matters most. Who receives this blessing, this approval, this smile of God? The poor in spirit. Jesus did not simply say here, the poor, full full stop. Throughout church history, there have been those who have interpreted the ethics and teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that they think pursuing a poverty-stricken life is best. But Jesus is not saying physical poverty in and of itself is a blessing. Over the centuries, whole branches of Christianity have been set up with this belief as central. Maybe you might think of the monastic movements where uh, those in those uh, orders would take vows of poverty as a nun or a monk. Now it is true that the Bible speaks often of the spiritual danger of valuing uh, material wealth too highly. Jesus himself has something to say about this, about pursuing treasures on earth later in his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. But it does not necessarily mean wealth in and of itself is evil. Rather, the Bible speaks of contentment apart from material possessions. Paul speaks about this issue in Philippians 4. From verse 10, it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Nor does this mean God doesn't care for the physically poor. God deeply cares for us, body and soul. The Old Testament law speaks of the requirement of Israel to look after the sojourners, the foreigners, the poor and the widow. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking to those who were probably all of them, most of them, quite physically poor as a people. Nor does this mean that God can't and doesn't use physical poverty for spiritual benefit. 
Like many things in our lives, God uses means and circumstances to teach us about himself. What then did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It is spiritual poverty that he has in mind here. The word poor here means something like beggar, being a spiritual beggar. Someone that has no spiritual resources to give in and of themselves. A person who stands before God entirely in need. In need of his mercy, his grace and his forgiveness. In this sense, these beatitudes come at us and shock us in their paradoxical nature, in their upside-down logic, when compared with that of the world. Today's world would sooner say concerning each person, blessed are those who are rich in spirit, or maybe blessed are those who are positive and upbeat in their soul. In today's climate, our Western world tends not to view people as spiritually poor in their relationship towards God. To suggest that we are somehow lacking on our part often can be offensive or maybe doesn't make sense or might seem unfair. But paradoxically, Jesus says, if you want God's approval, if you want my approval, if you want to be a Christian, you need to admit how unworthy you are in my sight, in and of yourself. That's the paradox of coming to know Christ as Saviour. You need to first understand your need for him. Jesus didn't die on the cross for no reason. He had to die in order to take away our sin. Acknowledge your sin and your unworthiness before me, says God, and my kingdom is yours. A similar thing is said in Isaiah 66 verse 2. It says there, but, uh, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now there's more to be said here, but for now, let's move on to the second beatitude. The second beatitude helps us to further understand the first one and also carries it further. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What did Jesus mean by saying, blessed are those who mourn? When we think of those who mourn, we tend to think in the negative. Someone who mourns is someone who is to be pitied, helped and comforted. Often describing someone who has experienced loss, great or small. There are ample reasons for you and I to mourn throughout our lives. When was the last time you mourned over something? When was the last time you were grieved in your soul? Maybe you are here today and you would describe yourself in that way. When I was writing this, uh, the thought came to my mind of the many parents and families, both in Ukraine and Russia, who right now, as we speak, are deeply mourning over the loss of a loved one in the war. The God of the Bible recognizes the pain that this life can sometimes bring us. Being a God who in the man Jesus Christ personally experienced human suffering, great and small, and he certainly empathizes with his people. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, as true as all that is, though, once again it is important for us to understand what Jesus has in view here concerning those who mourn. What Jesus is saying here and has in view is those who mourn over their sin. Those who are moved in their inner being over the state of their soul before their maker 
the heavenly judge. The Christian faith is one that recognizes, uh, that, sorry, that requires us to take good biblical doctrine to heart. Now, we live in a world where many outright reject solid biblical doctrine. Our culture tends to love warm and fuzzy Christianity, the feel good type. Give us a great positive atmosphere. Many come into churches desiring and wanting. Lots of positive, upbeat talk about human dignity. And uh, let's not worry about the negative stuff. Not so much about sin or the hard truths of Scripture that is hard to accept. A test that you are a genuine Christian then is to accept the hard truths, all truths, the ones that we find easy, the ones that we find hard. To be poor in spirit is one of those hard truths, as I've just outlined. But now, in Jesus' second beatitude, he ups the challenge. Like putting the high jump bar a little bit higher. Or perhaps further clarifies what he really meant when he said poor in spirit. To mourn over your sin then, not only means to mentally acknowledge good, sound, biblical doctrine. To mentally nod at the truth of the gospel. But it's really to take it to heart. To be moved, quickened in your soul, convicted by the Holy Spirit of your need for Jesus and his salvation. While on the one hand the church faces the danger of rejecting good biblical doctrine outright, on the other hand there's a danger that one hears and mentally approves of doctrine but never has it cut them to the heart. And so I ask you, have you ever truly mourned over your sin? As a quote from Spurgeon, he says this, There is a withering wrought by the Spirit, which is the preparation for the sowing and implanting by which salvation is wrought. Later in that same book, uh, there's another quote. There's a biography that I read. Uh, the author said, Those whom the Spirit withers will feel helpless like wounded soldiers crying out to be carried to a hospital. They are driven out of themselves that they might trust only in Christ and not on themselves anymore. Now this has further application for the Christian as well. In this way, the true Christian faces an added and ongoing burden in this life. In some ways... Paradoxically, the Christian is more burdened and troubled in this life. Why? Because not only do Christians suffer in all the normal ways that all people do, not only do we face all the troubles and difficulties as the fellow, our fellow neighbours. We might break our bone, we might lose our job, we might attend a funeral of a loved one. But the Christian, when they look out into the world and the sin that's there, when they look at the state of our godless society, when they peer into the darkness of their own sinful ways and passions that still lurks within their flesh and in their heart, they are burdened. They mourn over They mourn that things are not the way it's meant to be. They mourn for how this all offends God and brings dishonor to his name rather than honour and glory that is due to him. And so I ask you, to what extent does sin trouble you? Speaking about the ongoing mortification, which means putting to death sin in your life, uh, in the believer's life, Spurgeon says this. He says, this is mournful work, but it must be done. I think those who experience much of it when they first come to Christ have great reason to be thankful. Their course in life will, in all probability, be much brighter and happier. For I've noticed that persons who are converted very easily and come to Christ with comparatively little knowledge of their own depravity have to learn it afterwards. And they remain for a long time babes in Christ and are perplexed with matters that would not have troubled them if they had experienced a deeper work at first. 
What do you think? I think Spurgeon might be onto something there. But how does all this mourning relate to an important issue in our society with mental health and what some would call self-esteem? Especially those who experience low self-esteem. Some of you today who I know experience this for yourself. You would say that you're someone who has a low self-esteem. And if I'm vulnerable with you for a moment, I look back over my own life, that's been true of me sometimes. All of this speak of sin seems out of kilter with what our society says. Some might say that Jesus' words here are harmful. I mean, to say that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, that can't be right, can it? We're not broken because of our sin, are we? Surely that, that kind of talk can't be good for our self-esteem, can it? We must recognize the stark difference between what Jesus is saying here against what our modern secular psychology would tell us. And it all has to do with which voices you're listening to. When we judge and view ourselves, are we taking our cues from God or from somewhere else? Are we accepting other voices, whether they be our own voice and what we say about ourselves, or the voice of others and what they are saying, or what we think they're saying about us? Or are we listening to what the devil says? Or against those things, is it God's voice that we are primarily responding to and listening to? The late biblical counselor David Powlison nails it when he says this. It says, when we lose our bearings, where the eyes of God, the voice of God, the standards of God, the salvation of God don't compel my spiritual real- experiential reality, then I actually become awash in some combination of being over- overly sensitized with what other people think of me and overly sensitized to how I evaluate myself. What he's saying there is, really, who are you listening to? What voice are you listening to? Elsewhere, he speaks about these vo- uh, false voices with an illustration. Imagine a, a stage, a theatre stage with the red curtains behind. And in front of the stage, uh, on the one hand, the fear of man, thinking about other people's opinion, and the pride of man, where you are your own king of your life and what you think about yourself is most important. And then behind the stage, if you roll it back, is kind of the devil behind all of those things, all of those false voices. We are to take our cues from God and what He says about us. That is what's most important. And what is it that the voice of God says to the believer who looks to Christ? What does he say to those who are low in self-esteem? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. In other words, the same God who says that you are unworthy of your sin, and that you are not worthy to stand in his presence because of it, is the same God that says in the gospel to you and I, I accept you. If you accept my gospel, not because you're good enough for me, but because my son Jesus Christ is good enough. And in spiritual union with him, you become good enough for me. I accept you completely. When he speaks of being a part of his kingdom, Jesus says elsewhere that it is a kingdom not of this world, that Jesus is going to bring that kingdom in fullness one day. And in the meantime, he sends forth his spirit to dwell in his people. A spirit that also provides us comfort to those who mourn over the state of this world. This is comfort in the midst of life challenges. Not the promise of the removal of discomfort in this life, but a spiritual comfort to face the difficulties of life, knowing that God is with you. 
And so I ask you today, Christian, will you rest in Jesus? Will you run to him for your comfort from on high? Do you know that God accepts you, that heaven applauds for you, and that God is he's smiling towards you because of Jesus? There is now therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. Christ on the cross paid that full price for our sins. He shouldered that heavy backpack for sin. He climbed that impossibly steep hill on Calvary and bore the wrath of God in our place. All to redeem us. To save us from eternal hell and to become the caring shepherd of our soul. Do you know the freedom for yourself that comes from knowing Christ as your Savior? The removal of that great weight of sin over your life that otherwise crushes the soul that has become aware of it, that has been convicted by the Holy Spirit. If you are yet to know Christ, will you turn to him? Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will rest. I'll give you rest. Will you come? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, your word is deep and profound. And Father, we confess that we can't understand it without your help, without your spirit opening up your scriptures to us and bringing those truths home to us. Father, we thank you for these uh, yeah, opening words of your Sermon on the Mount, Father, where you do call us to recognize our depravity, our need for you, Lord, that we don't bring anything to the table as such in ourselves. But we thank you that in the gospel, uh, you've done it all. You've gone the whole way for us. That it's not up to us to be saved, but it is wholly upon what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. Father, we thank you that you have uh, made the way open to salvation for us, Lord. And as we dwell on that, help us to be a people who uh, cherish Jesus more and more for what you've done for us. Father, may we be a people who uh, do continue that journey of mourning in this life, that you would help us as we grow as Christians, that you would open up uh, our own hearts to us, ways in which we still have to grow into the image of Christ. And Father, I do pray uh, for anyone who doesn't know Jesus and uh, that you would uh, show their need for you and that uh, they would turn to you as the Savior of the world. 